Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. See that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm your moderator, John Viola, and today you're going to be in for part three of our Conversations on Columbus series. So that means you're stuck with just me one more time before we take a break next week and get back to the entire familia screaming over each other and discussing the topics that we love to speak about. Uh, for those of you who have been listening, first of all, thanks for your kind feedback and all of your letters and social media messages and things like that. We've really enjoyed hearing what everybody has to say about the topic. And for those of you who are listening for the first time, first of all, welcome. I highly recommend you go back. Well, I highly recommend you go back and listen to our entire archive of 150 some odd episodes of the Italian American podcast. But certainly for this purpose, I recommend you go back and listen to the first two episodes that we've done in this series on Columbus to give yourself some context and a little bit of placement. Uh, As I pointed out, this is a big topic for everybody to take on. And frankly, one that has been, for me personally, an even greater challenge than I would have expected at the beginning. These episodes are really hard to edit because we've got so many wonderful voices and such deep interviews, and I felt like it would be much better for the listening audience to have these things all put together in thematic episodes as opposed to just a glut of really good interviews, but ones that would overwhelm, I think, an audience and frankly be a little bit redundant because we're asking the same questions to all of these different speakers. But that being said, thank you very much for the patience that everybody's had. I know we've been releasing shows later in the day or taking a week break. Um, It's really difficult to get all these voices, give them the space and the time to get those opinions out, present as many sides as we can and as many speakers as we speak to. And frankly, every time we do one of these, another conversation comes up or somebody listens and says, oh, you should talk to this person or someone who we've already interviewed wants to refine a point or, you know, in some cases, even have another conversation. So it's a very complex task, and I appreciate everybody's patience with the series. And uh, I think it's one that is worth undertaking. And I wanted to, before we dive into today's episode, just give a little bit of an outline of how I'm thinking of handling the final episodes uh, between now and October, because we certainly don't want to do this again on Columbus Day. Today, I'm essentially going to follow Pat's prescription from the first episode, which is to treat this in some sense like a court case. We're going to present the case against Columbus. What are the major contentions that Columbus's detractors charge against him as they make a case for the removal of him, his holiday, uh, and his record, and his sort of heroic standing in the U.S.? And then when we come back with the next episode, we're going to have the rebuttal, in essence. We're going to speak to some of the more pro-Columbus academics and sources who will attempt to refute the criticisms that have been brought upon Columbus, the charges, if you will, uh, in recent years, as we'll talk about in just a little bit. Then from there, we're going to take an opportunity to talk about the Italian-American aspect 
of Columbus and this controversy and the holiday and what it means from an Italian-American perspective. So the next two episodes are going to be really from a national, non-ethnic perspective, very much Columbus as seen by all. And the reason I wanted to do it that way was because I felt from the beginning, and I feel even more so now that I've had all these interviews over these past few weeks, that there are really two separate issues here. One, Columbus as a figure, what he means globally, and then two, Columbus as an Italian-American touchstone and as a figure in our popular mythology as a community. And so I want to make sure we handle those things separately because I think those of us in the Italian-American community are really forced to have two very separate and very distinct arguments. One, what does Columbus mean globally? And two, what does Columbus mean to us? And I wanted to make sure not to conflate those things because I think they force us to ask very different questions. From there, my intention and our hope is to get someone who represents an institutional Native American organization to speak to us. There are many out there that we've contacted, and we're working on at least getting someone that can speak from a broad perspective on the Native American experience and this conversation around Columbus Day versus Indigenous Peoples Day. Because again, this is a point that veers off when you talk about Columbus as a international figure and the idea of the Columbian exchange, and then leads to a different conversation when it's one about Columbus Day and its meaning uh, for Italian-Americans in particular and for the rest of the country and the world in general. So I wanted to have that conversation, if possible, and we've had some interesting responses, and we'll keep you posted if we're able to pull that off. And we want to do it in a very thoughtful and sensitive way. You know, I don't want to just get kind of one opinion um, that might be somewhat myopic. I'd like to get a broad opinion And so we're really searching in the institutional Native American community there. And then finally, I think to wrap it up, I've tried very hard, and I hope you can all agree, for those of you that have listened, to not make this about me and keep my opinions out of the way that I ask questions and, more importantly, the way that I present responses. I've tried to be really honest about the fact that I, too, am on an intellectual journey around this, and I am asking these questions in a very genuine way very objectively, because I care about the outcome, um, and I care about our community, and I care about our country. So although I've tried to do that, we'll see if the time comes and if I feel right, whether or not I close this chapter in our show with the final episode where I come to some conclusions and share them with you. I think that's fair. Frankly, it's a little bit tricky, because in doing a show like this, we don't want our personal politics or opinions on sensitive issues to come between us and an audience that's really here for us to talk about the things that we have in common. And we try to be a show that binds and values the difference in the many, many versions of the Italian-American experience and as much values the difference in the many, many versions of the American experience. So I'm being very honest with you when I say I'm making that decision, uh, kind of a day of game decision, Uh, but we'll see. And I'd love to hear everybody's thoughts on whether or not my final conclusions are worth including in this dialogue. So that being said, let's get to the topic of today's episode, the charges that have been brought against Christopher Columbus by academics for about the past 30 years. And let me say again from the start, for those of you who are very, very pro-Columbus, please understand I'm just trying to present these opinions, and next week you're going to get a rebuttal. And for those of you who are anti-Columbus, please understand the opinions of these interviewees are being presented as objectively as possible, and this is not an endorsement of opinions or conclusions one way or another. So patience, again, as we've been asking from the very beginning. 
Now, in order for us to have a conversation about the charges against Columbus, I think we need to start with a little bit of historiography, a little examination of popular consciousness and conceptions of Columbus, because I want to get first and foremost to how and why things changed. If you go back, even in my lifetime, I'm about 40 almost, just turned 37 last week. I was a student of the late 80s, early 90s, and Columbus was taught in my primary school curriculum, basically in poems and prose, the kinds of things that Columbus's detractors might call hagiography. We learned 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, the Nina the Penta, the Santa Maria, and the idea of discovery. And all of these things are going to come up. But somewhere along the line, the conversation really began to change. I can remember being interviewed when I was at the National Italian American Foundation by a filmmaker who called up our office and said he was an Italian American concerned with the reputation of Columbus, and he was going to make a film about Columbus from an Italian American perspective, kind of a documentary defense of Columbus. And I did the interview. I shared some of my personal collection of artifacts. As everybody who listens knows, I'm a big collector of Italian American memorabilia. And we had a very pleasant conversation, and I kind of forgot about it. And a few years after I had left D.C., one of my former colleagues gave me a call and said, hey, you know, that documentary that you interviewed for all those years ago is now on Amazon Prime if you want to take a look at it. So I logged on, and I think uh, it's fair to say anybody with even a little bit of an ego wants to see how they look on film. So as the documentary begins, it's set in a third-grade classroom somewhere in the United States, and the teacher's lesson for the day is about Columbus. So I kind of expected the same sort of broad, unopinionated history that I got as a student. And lo and behold, the teacher introduces the concept and history of Columbus by asking one student to steal another student's lunch and tells the class that this is what Columbus did to the Native American population, took what he wanted with no rules, etc., etc., etc. And I was particularly bothered by this because while I don't expect a deep dissertation for a third grade class, the idea that you could teach something with so much opinion behind it really worried me. So I wanted to understand how in just a few generations we'd gone from hero to villain in such simple and black and white terms. So one of the interviews that I conducted, and this is a gentleman who I've gotten to know over the years as a great guy, is Professor Bill Connell. Professor Connell is the LaMotta Chair of Italian Studies at Seton Hall University, and he's also the co-editor of the Routledge History of Italian Americans, which is an amazing volume that was put out a couple of years ago. And you're going to hear a lot more from Professor Connell in future episodes when we discuss the Italian-American perspective and the holiday itself and what it means for the nation and Italian-America, because he's really an expert on the history of this holiday and the celebration and heroization and mythologizing of Columbus. But he also had a very good perspective on how the history and teaching of Columbus has changed over the years. So let's take a listen. So here's, here's another question, though, that I don't think people have, have really understood well, which is how Columbus Day became a target. Uh, so, so let's think, consider the Native Americans. Very few contacts between Italian-Americans and Native Americans. When they began in 1970 to act about it, to become active, there's this book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, gets a lot of press. Uh, suddenly there's this feeling uh, generally in the United, the United States that Native Americans have have gotten a really raw deal, that there's a lot of injustice here. Uh, and where do they go to protest? They go to Plymouth Rock on Thanksgiving Day, 
1970 is the first day, uh, and they proclaim a national day of mourning, which still exists. And so if you go to Plymouth Rock on Thanksgiving, uh, you'll find instead banners National Day of Mourning and people selling handicrafts, uh, farmer's market, that kind of stuff. And, and I remember seeing newspaper photos of these, you know, these people sort of uh, shivering out of Plymouth Rock on a rainy day on Thanksgiving. And the thing is, Americans love Thanksgiving. So it still exists. And there are activists who say that it's a National Day of Mourning, but it just never really took off in the way that the Columbus, anti-Columbus Day stuff has taken off. How did the anti-Columbus Day stuff take off? It happens in 1992, 500th anniversary, realization by historians doing the demographics and looking at population shifts that probably 70 to 90 percent of the population in the Americas died as a result of the contact with Europe. Uh, now, that contact would have happened anyway. It could have been St. Francis of Assisi sailing across the Atlantic, but the diseases would have, would have uh, killed that many people. Uh, and yet there's also an understanding that Columbus did do a terrible job on Hispaniola where things get out of hand. It's not just him, but, uh, but he was in charge. Uh, and I, I, I always say Columbus was, was a horrible governor, but a great seafarer. And he was, was terrible and he was fired. The guys who came after him didn't do a much better job. But. So that's 1992. And from here, Professor Connell went on to talk about the reaction to this 500-year anniversary celebration and hesitation and new discoveries in the history, and eventually the concept that Columbus Day should not be celebrated and should be replaced with Indigenous Peoples Day, a holiday that did exist in some states prior to 1992 when Berkeley, California becomes the first city to make the change. And Berkeley is the first place, and... The term indigenous, okay, is different from Native American. Uh, It's much broader. And what the intention was, was to look at not just the United States, but to use the term indigena is is in Spanish, a term for people who speak Quechua, Tlatzel, and Chiapas, and involve a larger group, larger mass of people in Latin America. Okay, in Central and South America, uh, the same people that leftists had been trying to organize uh, in Latin America for a long time. I mean, this is what Che Guevara was doing in Bolivia, to get these non-European Latin Americans involved. And in, in resistance against the, uh, the middle class and upper classes uh, that of, of European ancestry, in countries like Peru and Argentina, Brazil, Venezuela, and so forth. And so that that switch to indigenous involves Latin America. It allows you to make Columbus more of a target, okay? And there are some tactical advantages to choosing Columbus, too. One is the weather's better, okay? Another is that a lot of people sort of were losing their connection to Columbus Day. It wasn't like Memorial Day. It wasn't like the 4th of July. It was, oh, it's those Italians. Uh, There was also a recognition as something that Hollywood learned uh, 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 a decade earlier, which was if you get a bunch of Italian-Americans mad, you get free publicity. And just to clarify here, the free publicity that Professor Connell's talking about is the protests in the late 60s, early 70s within the institutional Italian-American community 
really for the first time coming together in protest of mafia portrayals on TV and eventually The Godfather. So that's uh, just a little bit of historical reference. So those those things came together to make it a kind of tactical. It, Columbus became a much better target than Thanksgiving Day. And then if you consider this Latin American dimension, you have increasing in the 90s onward a lot more immigration of indigenous Latinos. Uh, you have more people from El Salvador, uh, from Chiapas, from Peru, uh, where, where they speak Spanish, but they also speak the native language uh, and have less ties to Columbus. Uh, and there still is in a few countries, maybe in Uruguay, there was, uh, it was definitely this way for a long time, uh, in Latin America, a uh, national holiday called the Dio de la Raza, Day of the Race, okay? supposed to celebrate the blending of European and, uh, and indigenous people. But it, but it was a day that was really celebrating the arrival of white Europeans uh, who would then uh, impregnate uh, natives and create this kind of culture. And one of the politicians to really pick up on this was Chavez uh, in Venezuela. Uh, where where we know the disaster that happened there. But Chavez was, the, to my knowledge, and I've tried to look into it, was the first one to advocate taking down a Columbus statue. And it's in 2004 in Caracas that his followers put a noose around Columbus's neck, put a paint on him, pull him down off of a uh, main plaza in Caracas, creating a kind of pattern that then you start to see elsewhere. Um, uh, in Mexico City, they start putting paint on the Statue of Columbus Day, every, uh, on Statue of Columbus every day, Columbus Day, and that and that ritual spread. Uh, and so, uh, it's one of the crazy ironies of this recent George Floyd stuff that uh, that the single most common target of uh, statue destruction is Columbus. Uh, so it's like, I think forty four statues last. Four days ago, when I checked, have been scheduled, have either been removed or scheduled for removal. And uh, and the number I got next most common target is Robert E. Lee. There are eight eight statues. You know, there are more more Confederate statues, all told, than Columbus statues. All right, I think it's like uh, you know, like if you just say all, like if you want to include Stonewall Jackson and Jeff Davis and everybody, then you get more than Columbus. But otherwise, just a single target. And now why is that? Because there have been anti-Columbus groups targeting Columbus for more than a decade now, writing letters to city councils saying, take this down. Uh, there have been episodes of red paint. Uh, and so they basically, these anti-Columbus activists took advantage of this larger, of this, what I think is a different issue. So Professor Connell brings up some interesting points, one of which is the more global and long-term nature of the campaign against Columbus. And that's part of the reason I like to talk about this thing from a national or international perspective versus an Italian-American perspective in different conversations. And he also brought up some interesting criticisms of Columbus that we're going to get to over the course of the episode, the idea of native depopulation or genocide, as some scholars like to term it. He also brings up the accusations that Columbus was a terrible administrator or governor during his time in Hispaniola. And these are topics we're going to get to. 
But there's another topic that other interviewees brought up that I think is really important, which is not necessarily an accusation, but a context that Columbus is examined through. And the idea that when we talk about Columbus, we're not necessarily talking about the man, we're not necessarily talking about his actions, or even the actions that took place immediately following his voyages. We're oftentimes talking about the entirety of the Columbian exchange and the European colonial experience as it spreads out European culture throughout the world. And this is something that I heard from a few of the speakers, uh, particularly two gentlemen that I want to share a little bit from right now. The first is Professor Steve Cerulli, who is a professor at Hostess University here in New York City. And I found him because he is the author of an article of June 30th, 2020, entitled, If We Do Not Remove Them, Someone Else Will Do It For Us, Why Italian Americans Need to Be Leaders in Removing Columbus Monuments. And the second is a voice that you will be familiar with from the last episode, Professor Teo Ruiz from the UCLA Repertorium Columbianum Project. In terms of how did teaching change the perspective or how did the kind of historiography of Columbus change their perspective towards him? I think absolutely. Um, at least since the 1970s, when kind of post-colonial theory enters the academic discourse and we begin to kind of more critically think about the historical processes of colonization, so not just like the individual actions of Columbus the man, but the kind of consequences that colonization in general played out in the kind of American and the plural projects. So yeah, I definitely think the growing knowledge and better understanding of colonization has impacted the way people think about Columbus. And I also think one of the things we should do is try to kind of distinguish Columbus the symbol from Columbus the man. Because those are two different things. The symbol means something to Italian Americans, and the man is someone who committed certain actions during a historical moment. By 1992, there was an attempt to sort of also celebrate, and it ran into all kinds of opposition. So this is already 28 years ago into all kinds of opposition from Native Americans and from some of the Latin American population. Because if you're gonna celebrate Columbus, then you have to celebrate also, or they acknowledge the consequences of the encounter between the two worlds. That doesn't mean that Columbus came with a plan on how to exterminate natives in the, in the Valley of Mexico, in which they die in appalling numbers. He didn't even know that Mexico existed. He never realized that there was this great civilization, this very rich civilization in Yucatan, or had been in Yucatan, and now was in the Valley of Mexico. So on the one hand, the man has to be seen in the context of his time and his own personal history. On the other hand, many people see it as a kind of uh, beginnings of a process of colonization and submission and Christianization, which was also a pretty fraught enterprise in the new world. The issue is that while historians until 30 years ago we are political historians who wrote history from the top down. We historians now 
right from the bottom up. So I find it very interesting and relevatory that in both of these gentlemen's responses to my questions around why the teaching of Columbus changed or how the teaching of Columbus changed, they sort of spoke to a post-colonial mindset, the idea of a reassessment of the value and worth, I guess, of the connection of these two worlds and the experience and experiment that was born after it. And I find it very, very interesting that although we're going to examine some very clear charges against Columbus, this one seems to sit underneath all of them, which is something of a complication to our conversation, at least for me, because what it says is that even if Columbus is exonerated of all charges, was the Columbian exchange and the world born out of it still a worthwhile development? And I don't know, you know, as Professor Cerulli points out, we have to distinguish Columbus the symbol from Columbus the man. But it's almost like the difference between a criminal trial and a civil trial. If Columbus the man is exonerated at the criminal trial, is Columbus the symbol the symbol of the joining of these two worlds, ever able to be exonerated in civil court? Or is this really part of a collective self-doubt about the American experience itself? And obviously I'm not a lawyer, so I may be misusing my metaphor here, but in some sense I think that this is underneath everything we're going to talk about over the course of this series. So I wanted to make sure that we examined it here at the get-go. Now, another interesting phrase that was used by Professor Ruiz was the idea of the quote-unquote consequences of the encounter. And within that terminology, and you'll find a lot of these conversations are about terminology, is to me the first charge against Columbus that I want to examine, which is the idea of how do we even speak about what he did, right? The idea of the encounter or the Columbian exchange or whatever it is replaces what used to be a very common terminology of the discovery of the new world, Columbus as the discoverer. And so the first charge that everybody lobbies against him is that he didn't discover anything. And I kind of think that this is something that, while it deserves attention and requires some kind of definition, is sort of unfair as a criticism. Because while we can get caught up in the semantics of what discovery is. What can never be refuted is that Columbus did something unprecedented that had never been done before, which was the bridging of these two halves of the planet in a way that for the first time became permanent. And in the over a dozen interviews that I did, I didn't meet anyone, whether they were Columbus's biggest detractor or greatest champion, who disagreed that we're really talking about how we talk when we have this conversation. Let's listen to Professor Jim Pancrazio, who you met in the previous episode, as he talks about how we use terminology and what he thinks is the right way to address Columbus's accomplishments. One of the difficulties that we had from the onset was the discoverer versus colonizer. Uh, did he discover or did he encounter? And And I tried to cut through that and say, well, he invents. And I think that's a perspective that was presented by Edmundo O'Gorman in one of his books, The Invention of the America. He has to invent concepts. So 
I, I'm very reluctant to, to launch into big history. Um, I think because that always is inflected through ideology and, and great movements rather than I said, let's put the personal where it is and rediscover uh, small history. Professor Pancrazio had a lot to say on the invention of the new world by Columbus and his theories on how so much of our worldview as Americans is born out of Columbus's first contact with the new world. It's a topic that we're going to get into on the next episode a little bit. Professor Ruiz also added the common commentary that the Vikings, in fact, quote-unquote, discovered America. We're the first Europeans to set foot on this continent. Let's have a listen to his opinion on the discoverer question. I think it is not the current term that is used. Discovery means a superior civilization encountering another. That was essentially in the dark. But the Americas have been settled 15,000 years. Although the people who live in the Caribbean were at a very low level, a kind of Neolithic level of civilization, certainly the Mayan or the Nahua, meaning the Mexica, the, the Aztecs, or certainly even the Peruvians in the 1520s and 1530s have reached levels of uh, complex societies that were in some respects equal to those of, of Europe. Tenochtitlan, which is Mexico City today, <clears throat> was the largest city in the Western Hemisphere in 1521. So the, the, the idea is that we discover you. It's like, it's like a Stanley, I discovered the, the fall of Kilimanjaro. Well, you know, there are people who live there and have seen it for a long time. So the question is, the discoverer. Well, the reality, of course, is that the Norsemen, the people whom we mistakenly call Vikings, had a settlement in Anne's Omedo in what is today Newfoundland and probably reached as far south as Yucatan. And there is some frescoes in Chichen Itza it shows some Viking ships and three white men being sacrificed by excising their hearts. There are debates about the sort of veracity of these frescoes, but they are there in Chichen Itza and they can be seen. I have them on my computer. Getting caught up in something like this seems very trivial to me. I think the bottom line is, whether you hate him for it or you love him for it, what we're talking about when we talk about Columbus is not just the fact that he arrived here, but the fact that he went back with news and connectivity that had never existed before. So I oftentimes feel like the questioning of the title discoverer or term discovery is hand-in-hand with another accusation against Columbus, both of which appear to me to be amongst the ideologically driven character assassination attempts based way more on speculation and a smear campaign than some of the serious charges based on the historical documentation. And complementary to the idea that Columbus didn't discover anything is the assertion that Columbus was a bad scientist, a bad navigator, and incompetent in his field. And that's something that you see a lot. I see a lot of these videos on YouTube, some of them aimed for kids, that talk about how Columbus didn't know where he was going and thought that he was going out into 
uh, a world that everybody else understood, but he didn't. And in all of my conversations and in all of my reading, frankly, that's really not the case. And every single person that I spoke to uh, when asked the question or even before they were prompted maintained that Columbus was a world-class, ahead-of-his-time navigator and not simply some mediocre ship's captain who happened to get lucky and crashed into a new continent. Uh, it helps to understand part of the positive view, uh, the fact that this was a, a seafaring society. The United States was a maritime nation. We didn't have air travel. Um, uh, steamships meant that more people could cross the ocean. Uh, and uh, the fiction of those days, Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, is all about, Herman Melville, it's all about sailing. Uh, and so the big emphasis on Columbus was not uh, his terrible work as, as governor on his Noah, but instead his, his fairly, uh, well, really brilliant wages of discovery. Uh, his ability to rescue his men from uh, a shipwreck, his uh, insisting on going farther. Uh, sometimes he'd lie to his men. But in, in the United States in the 1880s, 1890s, that was, that was all part of his grand figure. He was. Oh, no, he was a great sailor. That, there is no question. He was a great sailor, and he knew the Atlantic very well. He had sailed to Iceland. He had sailed down the coast of Africa. He had been to the Canary Island. He had been already one-third of the way to the Americas. So... Columbus was a great sailor. He had embraced a view of geography by somebody named Toscanelli, which was incorrect. But he, there is no question, there is a, an American scholar who wrote a, a biography of Columbus, but he was a sailor. Morrison was his name. And he has a very careful account of Columbus sailing in the second voyage in the southern part of Cuba which is a very long island, and the southern coast is filled with little island, as a kind of almost extraordinary feat of sailing in this period. He knew that you have to travel to the New World at a certain times and not at others because it's mostly westerlies, and so when do you have the easterlies to go, and then when do you go back? By the way, you know, no one in Europe who lived close to the sea ever believed that the earth was flat. It's nonsense. The Catholic monarchs, not actually the Catholic monarchs. This is, as I said to you, a Castilian enterprise. So he had come to them before and asked them to support this enterprise. And they said no. And they sent the case to Salamanca, where the doctor said, this is crazy. We know that the size of the earth is very different. They thought he was wrong about the size, but they also knew that you could sail westward and reach Asia because the world was round. And the people knew this from antiquity. You know, Aristotle has measured the earth long before. But he, on the second try, after the, the Catholic monarchs had conquered Granada, he came up with this enterprise, and they sort of very meagerly supported this enterprise. I cannot tell you how puny these three ships are and how little is invested here. But he got also an incredible contract with them. He will be named Admiral of the Ocean Sea. He will be giving all this, this and that. So one of the things that ended up is Columbus going to the, to the Caribbean to become an administrator. 
and there were issues whether he was uh, a very bad administrator or whether there was some embezzlement. It's not clear he, he did go back and change to the old world and then allowed to return in what were essentially melancholy trips of exploration, including one that the fourth voyage, which takes him all the way to the mouth of the Orinoco River. He was a great sailor and a terrible administrator. So if we can exonerate Columbus, at least on his navigational skills, as you notice with both of these speakers, it leads us to another conversation, which is his inabilities as an administrator here in the New World. Columbus was the governor, particularly on the island of Hispaniola, today the countries of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And it's here, really beginning with the second voyage, that we start to see criticism of Columbus that we can actually contextualize and find sources for. As a matter of fact, many of the people that I spoke to referenced a newly discovered source, uh, his court documents from the time of the second voyage. In 2006, these documents were discovered in Spain, and as we talked about a little bit in the previous episode on sources, these are the first time we begin to see actual accusations and not just references to the problems of the New World and of the Spanish colonial experiment. This is where we start to see actual allegations against Columbus. As many of the academics here have spoken about, Columbus was taken back to the Old World as a prisoner. I've worked to try to figure out the exact circumstances of Columbus's return. Was this a coup by the men in the colony? Was this at the request of the Catholic monarchs in Spain? I've had a hard time figuring out exactly why, and I will dig further into that in the future episodes, because I think this is an important part of the discussion, really the crux of where the conversation around Columbus begins to turn. But needless to say, the idea that he was a terrible administrator for many of the academics I spoke to was proven by these documents discovered in 2006. I also read uh, a manuscript. It was a manuscript discovered in 2006 in the archives in Seville. And it's the record of the register of the investigation that was sent, uh, of the guy who was sent to Hispaniola, uh, who put Columbus in chains and brought him back. And you have witness testimony from a whole bunch of people. If you read it, it's pretty detailed. Uh, the stories tend to corroborate one another. And it, it shows that, that it was pretty rough there. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there, was, there was a Spanish woman who said Columbus's brother, I think it was, was, uh, was, had been a weaver. Um, and this was like a high-class Spanish woman. So, they, so Columbus's other brother, Bartholomew, has, uh, has the woman's tongue cut out. Uh, and Columbus writes a letter saying, you did what you had to do. It was the right thing. Columbus himself says, I mean, free. And, and you have Franciscan Friar saying that uh, Columbus uh, said they couldn't convert anybody to Christianity unless they had his own personal approval. Uh, and it was because he wanted to, uh, to be able to, to take those, uh, those natives to, um, uh, as slaves back to Spain. The, the truth of the matter is that Columbus' explorations and first attempts to settle 
the Caribbean proved to be a bit of a disaster because all the things that, you know, he, I think he probably went to, to his deathbed thinking that he had reached Japan or the Indies. The idea is that the Caribbean, especially after the second voyage or the third voyage, did not yield the kind of things that they expected to find. No spices, no gold, very little, very little gold, no silver. So how do you essentially finance this? And Columbus' uh, support was to sell the carriage, who were, after all, uncivilized and cannibals, not all the other natives, but just the Caribs, and then with that finance the enterprise. So until 1520, 1521, by that time Columbus was dead, the New World did not offer a great deal of compensation. Remember, this is a, an economic competition. The Spaniards, by which we mean the Castilians, because this is a Castilian enterprise. There is no Spain in this period. It's divided between different kingdoms. And Castile was uh, essentially behind Portugal in reaching the real gold mine, which is, of course, India and the Asian trade. And in fact, the great moment in the history of the West in, you know, at that time, was not Columbus' discovery or the encounter with the New World, but it was Vasco da Gama returning in the late 15th century to Antwerp with a ship laden with peppercorns and making an immense fortune from this trade. So, as you see in the prior conversations, and one topic always leads into another, Professors Ruiz and Connell both bring us to what is clearly the most important charge against Columbus, his involvement with slavery. And I want to point out, this is where we start to turn, in my mind, to questions that really matter. The terminology of discovery, whether or not he was a good navigator. Honestly, these things pale in comparison to the concepts of slavery and genocide, which are the heart of the argument against Columbus that we encounter. And so this topic is one that I want to introduce here with the accusation and the charge, but I'm also going to allow for a rebuttal in the next episode because this is where I start to see real divergence of opinion, real divergence of interpretation of the source material. And as you'll see in the next episode, some of the accusations that you'll hear now are interpreted completely differently by other Columbus scholars. And as I've said from the beginning, I want to present you with as much information as possible and allow and encourage you to continue to study and make up your own minds like we all will make up our own minds. And this is the topic that I'm finding the most divergence on. So let's explore how exactly Columbus becomes attached to the concept of slavery and the difference between the slavery that we're talking about in the early Colombian exchange and the slavery that evolves based on the African slave trade and the plantation system in the United States, which occurs after Columbus's death. So I asked all of the interviewees the simple question, was Columbus involved in slavery? Yes, he is. He is. And it, but it was, it was sort of normal. Genoa had the highest number of slaves per capita of any European city. Okay? Uh, it was a major slave trading city. It had its, uh, its big slave depot was uh, in the Black Sea. 
they would bring white-skinned slaves uh, or, or Asians from, uh, from Central Asia as domestic servants to, uh, to Europe. And when the Ottomans take that over, the Genoese uh, and like the Venetians too, get involved in the slave trade down the African coast. And Columbus uh, sails those waters. Uh, he gets his, his, his money to actually sail across in 1492, comes from this Florentine slave trader. And when he, uh, yes, he writes about souls. He's concerned about souls and Christianity and stuff like that. But he also has to pay back his loan shark. And, and his second, his, when he comes back on his second voyage and hasn't found much gold, he rounds up uh, its 500 natives uh, to sell his slaves in the Spanish slave market. Uh, only 300 survived the voyage, which is about a common ratio uh, in uh, transatlantic slave trade, unfortunately. So 300 arrived in Spain, uh, and he arranges a slave auction. And it's Isabella who intervenes. So she's worried about the souls. She convenes a theological panel that then says, no, you can't enslave people who could be, who haven't been had the opportunity to be converted. Um, and yet, meanwhile, we have testimony that Columbus was interfering with conversion because he wanted to be able to sell slaves. All right. So, the, but slave selling slaves was unfortunately horrible, a horrible thing, but it was fairly normal uh, back then. You have to remember that that there's, you see, Columbus sailed in the Mediterranean where you had hundreds of thousands of Christian slaves uh, who, you know, there would be, there would be slave raiding ex expeditions on the Barbary coast uh, that would bring back thousands, you know, they'd, they'd land on, uh, on, on Corsica, Sardinia, the Calabrian coast, and take back thousands of slaves to sell in, uh, in North Africa. And then if you were, if you were a sailor uh, and you were captured, uh, you were, you were enslaved. Uh, like, like, for instance, Cervantes, uh, uh, who was a slave for 10 years until they ransomed him uh, back to Spain. Cervantes, whose statue was taken down by the, uh, by the uh, people in, in San Francisco, along with uh, a bunch of other statues. That's a big question to unpack. I also don't think it's like projecting our modern, you know, original sin understanding of slavery onto the past. Because in Columbus's case, the 500 Native American slaves that he captured would have paid off his personal debt. I don't think we should apologize for that. I don't think we should be like, oh, well, it's okay because people had slaves back then. We should just say he literally sold or attempted to sell slaves. That's just a historical fact. You know, I don't think it's putting a value judgment on it, but it's acknowledging that's a historical fact. And the big issue is a lot of people are, are, are jumping to kind of apologize for that. And I don't, I don't understand why, it's beyond me. There's some people you're just never going to convince. And I think we have to accept that. Um, they'll say things like, you know, well, they had slaves all the time back then, therefore it was okay. You know, there's some people that are just okay with it and don't care. That's, that's essentially what I'm trying to say. Slavery is as old as humanity itself. And most of the slaves in, in the classical world were people captured in war, and most of them came from the areas in which the Slavic people live, which is why the word slave comes from Slavic people, from the area around the Black Sea and so on. But were also Germans and also people from England and so on that were captured and worked. However, a slave in Rome or in, or in Greece or, in, or even in North Africa and Islam had a very different phase 
in as much as there is not these economic systems that make you work on a plantation. And because there's also a great deal of manumission, that is to say the freeing of a slave, manumitting them at the end of their lives and things like that, is not uncommon in the Hispanic world as opposed to the, America, the North America, the, the US. So, uh, and that is also that remains part of the Latin American experience. There are many historians, all this is on the continuous debate and contention, but there are many scholars, are certainly around 30 years ago, who argue about the differences of slave systems in the two Americas. Both of them were horrible, but one had differences from the other. So the point that Dr. Ruiz is making, and one that's come up in all of my conversations with those who are pro-Columbus and those who are anti-Columbus, is the distinction between the slavery of Columbus's time and the African slave trade that is really the original sin of our national experience. It's something that everybody has talked about, and it's something we'll talk about on the next episode when we speak to those who interpret these documents and the claims of slavery in a very different way. If you've already listened to the prior episode that we did, we talk about this a little bit when it comes to the source material, because the passages that all of these scholars are referring to oftentimes are translated differently. Some are translated slavery, some are translated servitude. Some have explained it to me around the concept of being servile as a quality. But needless to say, this kind of divergence in the interpretation, as I mentioned before, is really important to what I think is the most critical of the accusations against Columbus. And in the next episode, you're also going to hear a little bit of a different interpretation around Columbus's returning to Spain with these 500 indigenous Caribs, what his intentions were, and how these particular 500 indigenous peoples ended up returning to Spain with him. So it's something that probably makes up the most important part of the conversation. And I hope everybody, no matter how you feel, will leave some room for objectivity and at least dialogue as the next episode presents contrasting opinions. And that being said, we're going to spend a lot of time in the next episode unpacking as much as we can this question of slavery and seeking truth. But if slavery is, in my mind, the most important topic for us to really understand, I think the second most important is the concept of genocide. It's one that oftentimes goes hand in hand with slavery when people are talking about Columbus's alleged sins. And in his commentary, Dr. Ruiz brought this up. So I want to let you listen to what he had to say and then get some other opinions on the idea of genocide in the New World. The second voyage is the critical voyage. <clears throat> the second volume, the second voyage of Columbus in 1493, when they came not to, to explore, but to settle, there are 17 ships, 1,000 people, there is a doctor, there are animals, and which is the critical moment of the intersection between the two worlds. Then the other side of the story is the encounter with the Caribs. The Caribs are a, a group of Arawaks and you know, natives to the Caribbean who are moving from the area north of Venezuela, from all those lesser Antilles, all the way up into when Columbus arrives there. The Caribs are now reaching the greater Antilles, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Cuba. And they are accused of cannibalism. There are many debates as whether these people were really cannibals or not. 
but cannibalism is a charge that is used all throughout the Western civilization history to demonize your enemies. It was used against Christians at the beginning of Christian persecutions. It was used against Jews. It was used against Muslims. It was used against witches in the 16th century, that they are cannibals, that they are beyond humanity, and that therefore they can be enslaved. And, and the charge against Columbus is in this memorandum, which is published in the book of Shankar's account, in which he makes a suggestion to the Catholic monarchs to enslave the Caribs, not all the natives, the Caribs, because they were cannibals. Now, the Catholic monarchs said no. And the Catholic monarchs also in the laws of Burgos in 1504 and afterwards recognized the rights and humanity of the natives. But, you know, the reality, of course, is that he did recommend enslaving of natives and that uh, the encounter between the old world and the new was catastrophic for populations were completely wiped out. Well, not completely wiped out, but almost wiped out. The great uh, civilizations of the Aztec, which was essentially ritual, they practiced ritual cannibalism and they were a warrior society, was wiped out. The Inca Empire, which was a kind of uh, fairly benign form of ruler who took care of and organized socially and politically whole masses of people was also completely destroy and that uh, <clears throat> you know the, the the impact of colonization st still felt in this country i mean think about native americans in the united states what has happened to them they were pushed into reservations that are unproductive lands and so there, there is it's a many different intertwined histories here that you have to be very careful about teasing out the truth here and the truth there, and sometimes they are contradictory truth. So Dr. Ruiz is referring to the demographic crash that affects the indigenous populations of the New World after the Columbian Exchange. And this is a point that many of Columbus's critics make in the banner headline. He's responsible for quote-unquote genocide. And I've never really thought of myself as somebody to turn to you know, Webster's Dictionary when making a point. But I think it's important that we address the term, again, terminology comes into play, genocide here. Because genocide, as defined by Webster, is the deliberate and systematic destruction of a racial, political, or cultural group. And obviously, the key word there is deliberate. And as we've talked about in this episode and in prior episodes, every scholar that I've spoken to has agreed that there was nothing deliberate about the spread of disease that came from the old world to the new and vice versa. Let's hear what they had to say when I asked them about accusations of genocide. Most of the natives of the Caribbean die, but they, they die for two reasons. One, because of epidemics. And so the COVID-19 has a, an echo here. They were not immune to a smallpox and measles and all kinds of other things and, and die in large numbers, but also because of work. But Columbus is not responsible for that either. That is to say, the Catholic monarchs, Isabel and Ferdinand, but remember, this was a Castilian enterprise. 
Italians were allowed to come in because they worked with the Castilians. Catalans and Basque were not allowed to come in into the New World. So when the people came to settle and have farms and things like that, they were terrible about eating the local food. They still wanted to bring food from, from Europe. And of course, the climate was very different and the ecology was very different. And the introduction of animals, which is an important point in the, in the destruction of this world, created great ecological changes. But they say it's the, the people who come who want to have native Aboriginal people to work in the farms in return for turning into Christianity. But it became essentially a very abusive uh, system. And they died because they, you know, they were a hunting and gathering society and they were not used to this. Most of the deaths occurred among people who never saw a white European's face. These diseases spread. Uh, you know, so yes, he he caused he caused these things, but it's the difference between causing them and being morally responsible. So I think Dr. Connell gets to the crux of all of this, which is what is the moral responsibility that we can attribute to Columbus for both his actions and the effects of his actions and the effects of the exchange and the relationship between two worlds that he initiated on his return to Spain with evidence of this new vast continent that was unknown to the old world. And I think the genocide conversation, as I said, beyond the terminological importance of how you define genocide, is also tempered by the idea that humanity didn't really know what a germ was until Louis Pasteur discovered them in 1881. Let me be very careful there. Proved their existence in 1881. But I think one of the conclusions that I'm coming to is that we have to be careful to avoid conflating Columbus and his legacy with the really painful but ever-present aspect of our national history, which is the legacy of colonialism. And the question in my mind that keeps coming up is, what is really on trial here in the court of American popular conception? Is it a man or is it a moment? And the effect and the world that was born out of that moment. And these are two very separate things. Our nation and all of the nations of the new world are inescapably born of a colonial experiment. And if we examine and ultimately judge Christopher Columbus and his actions in a court of popular opinion that presupposes that this colonial nature of our nation makes it intrinsically unforgivable, how are we to give Columbus or any American who comes after him, a genuinely fair trial. People as individual, but it goes it goes beyond that. It's also the kind of historical process that he ignited, right? And to blame him totally for that, that process is colonization, right? To blame him totally for that is is ridiculous. But we also have to acknowledge that he's part of this process, and in many ways, him as a symbol is a celebration of this process. Is and colonization is brutal. Right? We, can't, we can't apologize for it, right? We shouldn't feel sorry for what happened in the past. We shouldn't celebrate it or apologize for it either. What I would advocate and, and what I try to do with students is, is, is kind of avoid the, the kind of the, the, sweeping, the sweeping version of, of the, the painting history with a very broad brush and, and the, the, the reservation, the caveat that I would express about Columbus being the 
the metaphor for the original sin of conquest, colonization, uh, slavery, is that what it does is it creates kind of a, a first cause. And, and, and in doing so, you forget about all of the other causes and all of the other currents that are, that are going and that are moving. Like, like for example, um, and when you think of First Nations and, and they talk about Columbus, and I said, wait a second, now let's not overlook the Indian Relocation Act, which I think had, had far, far more devastating, uh, devastating effect on the First Nations in the North American continent than, than Columbus's uh, kind of short-lived expedition. And I think that, you know, if we look at the events that occurred in there, we find that, that it was very controversial and that there were numerous, I mean, in Congress, there were many that opposed it. And, um, and I think that that's the history and that's the nuanced sense of history that I would advocate. And, and that is one of the, uh, I think one of the difficulties I had students, I had a number of students that I had, I mean, say, would say things like the Americas should never have been discovered. And, and it's the same from a very kind of a religious uh, missionary perspective. And, and, and I, it, which was a, it was an interesting exercise in grammar uh, because we had to kind of go through this in a, uh, like a uh, past perfect subjunctive and conditional. And I said, however, by the very nature of that grammar means that we're speculating on something that didn't happen. And, and, and what that means is, is that does that mean that a different historical outcome would have been better? And he looked at me and I, and, and I said, you don't have any proof. <laughs> there's no, there's, there's zero. You can't prove what didn't happen. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was very painful for him because he wanted to kind of hold on to that, to that very pleasure inducing image of, of, of perfection and things like that. Nonetheless, nonetheless, it was something he had to walk through and say, wait a second. It, just, let's say if we would go back in time, it doesn't mean that the outcome would have been better. It only means that the outcome would have been different, which is begging the question. And at the same time, it doesn't address the issues that we have in front of ourselves. Dr. Pancrazio makes a point that I think is really important in the context of everything we're trying to do. This conversation about Columbus is not being conducted in a vacuum. And it's not, at least for me, being conducted solely because this is a figure associated with the Italian-American community. To me, as I've said many, many times, I think it's the responsibility of our community as that most closely associated with Columbus to take on the difficult task of examining his history and what it means for our country. And as Professor Cerulli points out, it's not just about apologetics, how we feel about our past. It's about how we feel about our future. What defines us as Americans and what are the ideals that we aim for as this experiment continues to evolve? And hopefully, in our own little way, we're doing something to add to that conversation here. So this has been yet another intellectual heavy lift for me. And so I hope everybody out there continues to find the exercise worthwhile and objective. And I look forward to hearing from you as we prepare for the next episode in this series. So from all of us at the Italian American Podcast, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. See that you're born an Italiano, 